Podcast 229, Gourmet Restaurant Experience. Sponsored by my buddies at PantryParatus.com. Uh, they sell food preservation tools. Produce, prepare, preserve your own harvest. Okay, it's on. It's going. Hi there. <laughs> so, so Jocelyn and I uh, ate at a nice restaurant. Yes, a fantastic restaurant here in the little old town of Woodenville, Washington. They say it's the only five-star restaurant west of Chicago and north of, was it San Diego or San Francisco? San Francisco, north of San Francisco. Oh, and, right there. And then on, on top of that, um, like National Geographic did something where they, they uh, reviewed... I think it was National Geographic reviewed ten five-star restaurants, and this one was the number one out of the ten. I think we've been using the incorrect term. It's five diamond. Oh, five diamond. Okay, a five diamond restaurant. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, I would. I'm having a hard time imagining a restaurant getting much fancier than this. But the the key for the podcast, I think, is to talk about. Um, how they can charge $586 for two people and uh, to, to, to participate in their meal. And, and I, I know that a lot of people are talking about, oh, you can't sell food for that much money. And um, this was not a tiny restaurant. This is, this, there was probably 100 people there. Do you think that's about right, about 100? I'm a terrible judge. I didn't think it was that many. I was thinking more like... 80? Mm. I was thinking more like forty or. No, know. there was way more than forty. Okay. There was. I would. I would say the minimum would be eighty. A hundred might be pushing it, but um, I would guess. I would guess closer to a hundred than eighty. So. It was a uh, large dining room. I mean, not huge, but it wasn't like it was a tiny restaurant. So, um, it was a lovely space next to a very fancy hotel, um, down in the winery tourist area. Of Woodenville. Now, a few weeks ago, I've I've given my presentation a lot, uh, like I don't know, like five times this year, maybe even more, on uh, how to make the big bucks with permaculture. And this last time I gave it in Missoula, and there was somebody in the audience who got upset and started talking about how permaculture shouldn't be about making money. And um, and so then I'm I think that uh, I, I've got a couple of things to say to that, and one is is that when it comes to, to um, uh, permaculture, uh, A, I've given away more information on permaculture than all other permaculture people combined. So I think, you know, first of all, when people want to say I'm just a fucking money grubber, well, I am a fucking money grubber. And at the same time, I've given away more stuff than all other permaculture people combined. So I want to make that clear. And second of all, I think that while it's totally fair for somebody to choose to give things away, I think it's also totally fair for somebody to choose to make money at this. And on top of that, I think that there's the Tesla Roadster effect, that as soon as people start to go down Permaculture Road and, and earn um, $500,000 a year, then um, we're going to see a lot more farmers wanting to go down that path. And, and then that's going to help to make it so that all the food that's sold at Safeway is permaculture food because farmers make more money doing that. 
Have we talked about the Tesla Roadster effect before? I mean, that might not be obvious to everybody. So okay. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I can't remember. Um, you wanted to give but, a try? Well, I think what you're saying is there's a Tesla Roadster that proved that electric cars could be uh, amazing. They could be fast. They could be sexy. Um, they could be incredibly valuable. Um, and then that, you know, having that high-end um, item helped pave the road for more middle-of-the-road items like the Prius and the other hybrids that are almost normal now. The Nissan Leaf as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. duh, duh, duh. The other 100% electric cars, yes, are more. So the before the Tesla Roadster, um, the, it was amazing. You, you would go out and you would talk to people about an electric car, and they would say things like, electric cars suck because they can't go faster than 40 miles an hour. And you try to explain to them the reason why they can't go for more than 40 miles an hour is because they haven't done the test. They're, they're legally limited to 40 miles an hour until they get that, that testing done to allow them to go highway speeds. By then, they've already tuned you out and waved their hand in, in this dismissing fashion, like, oh, you know, whatever, I don't give a shit. You just say crazy-ass shit, I don't want to hear it. So the Tesla Roadster basically went out and said, that well, they went out and they made the fastest car that money can buy, uh, for a vehicle off the shelf. And I mean, I think that the La there's a Lamborghini that just barely goes a little bit faster, but it's a $500,000 vehicle instead of a $100,000 vehicle. Um, so then, uh, the, so basically demand for the Tesla was huge. So a lot of people would get these, and of course they're totally quiet and they're crazy fast. And, and um, so uh, basically um, uh, crushing all these myths about electric cars. So I, I really believe that what I want to do is I want to encourage those people that are going to go out there and sell food for $100 a pound or uh, $1,000 a pound. I, wanna, I want those people to be permaculture people. I want, those, I want permaculture stuff to, to end up being the premier premium food that's out there. So, and a lot of the kickback that we get is this whole thing about like nobody would ever pay that much. So in this instance, all the people who came to this event, uh, for every couple that was there, it's $586 per couple. Right. And uh, it says something else, and it's like, I don't know how it, you know, but anyway, how they do their math and whatnot. But, but anyway, it turned out to be $586 per couple. And um, the place had about 100 people. And, and it's, it's sold. I mean, you've got to get reservations. You right. can't just walk up. Right. We were lucky to get in on fairly short notice. They happened to have a table for two. Um, the table next to us, I heard him say, that's a whole table of chefs. There was a table of like eight or ten near us that was a whole table of chefs. And in fact, we had some time. It, it's, it's an entire evening. It's an entire event. And it's nine courses. And there's a little tour to start. And before we got there early to make sure we wouldn't miss the tour, and um, they have a little chef's library and tea for you, you know, all, all of this stuff while you're waiting. And as we were waiting in the library, we were visiting with some other patrons that were there for the night. And these were people 
that we're so into taste, so into flavor, so into the slow food movement. And um, another Italian term I learned that night and I didn't write down was um, having a restaurant right in the place where all the food for that restaurant is grown. And more and more restaurants are making their own cheeses and doing their own um, charcuterie. Is that how you say that word? They're doing all of their own sausages and ferments and vinegars and all of that at the restaurant, let alone growing it. So so the, this was the herb farm restaurant. And it started as an herb farm, and then they began doing more and more classes. And I'm jumping ahead a little bit here onto what the tour was. The tour was the history of this place. But <clears throat> it was quite, quite the event. Um, so I, I guess I'll keep going. So the tour was, uh, since it was a rainy, cold, northwest winter evening, we, we didn't tour the gardens. But they have gardens right there at the restaurant where they actually use herbs from their herb gar and vegetable gardens right there. But just within a mile is where they grow their vegetables. They grow their own vegetables, and they wildcraft a lot of their food and vegetables. And then everything is pretty much locally sourced, pretty much. And they um, highlight local wines that they pair with each course. Um, and there were, yeah. I suppose we should say it's a nine-course meal. Yes. And it's, um, I mean, I, I think we showed up at four in the afternoon on a Sunday, mm -hmm. and we were there until after nine, I think, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it was a good five hours. And um, when we first walked in the door, and we were told if we, if we show up at four that there will be a garden tour, weather permitting. And instead of that, they kind of did a, they pretended like they were in a garden tour and they they'd harvested some foods and brought them in, and then the uh, the the there's a, uh, the proprietors, a husband and wife, the wife uh, gave a kind of a presentation as if we were in the garden and showed, uh, you know, some of the stuff they harvested just then for the food that was about to be, um, you know, uh, prepared. And and uh, passed around little snippets of herbs and vegetables and weeds. That was what was so exciting. She had um, chickweed. Right, right. So we're all eating. She's like passing it around and saying, "Try some of this." And so we tried. Everybody tried a little chickweed. Right, right. So, and the whole meal and the whole experience was all about that. It was about explaining, you know, the flavors here and the food, where this came from, and what what item was wildcrafted and what they made themselves there. Um, they're they're quite popular. This was not their hundred mile dinner but they started doing 100-mile dinners there. And it's a, it's a big deal. It's a very popular version of their dinners. And they found out... How do they tell if one's more popular than the other because they're sold out every night? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe that one um, has a longer waiting list or, or you know, fills up faster than the others. But they, um, they started making their own ferments and vinegars and making their own salt for the 100-mile dinners. So since they got in the habit of doing that for the 100-mile dinners, a bunch of the sauces and chutneys and little flavor things that were in each plate were largely made right there at the herb farm or were made with local ingredients. It was pretty, pretty spectacular. So um, I, I think <laughs> the, the, 
I think the thing I want to emphasize most of all, and so I'm going to emphasize it probably the third time now, and that is that the place was packed, the price was high, and so then if you think about what is the price per pound for the food that was there. So granted, there, there were some things like there was venison and elk, um, and there were um, some mushrooms, an interesting mushroom that grows uh, at the base of a maple tree, so the mushrooms taste like maple. Um, right, they made a caramel, a maple-flavored caramel sauce for the dessert out of mushrooms. Yeah. Um, a, a, a lot of the food comes from either their garden or um, very nearby, but we had a lot of things that were from like a few hundred miles away. I just want to interject that even though it was nine courses, they were small plates. I mean, you know, not tiny, tiny, but small plates. So you likened it to a tapas, a tapas right. restaurant. Right. And it's not like there was nine things. There was probably 20 to 30 things. Right, because each plate was a little collection. So should we just go through what it was? Um, well, first, you know, I, I kind of want, I feel like I have something else to say about the, uh, about the intro. Oh, when we got there, so mm -hmm. granted, now part of this is, is that it's a five diamond restaurant and all of that. And, and I'm not, I'm not, I, not really my thing. In fact, um, I should say, yes, I did wear my overalls there. And, and, <laughs> and, uh, there was, um, uh, I, I went to the restroom and when I was coming back, there was this rather stunning woman. Who um, and it's like all the staff are these pretty people, um, and so there's this rather stunning woman who um, stops me in the hall and says something about my choice of fashion is so amazing and brave mm -hmm. and things like that. And I thought I thought it must be one of the people who work there, and they're just sucking up to whoever is there because it's kind of like their job. But later I found out that no, it was one of the other patrons. <laughs> so, uh, um, but. Uh, I, I was a little surprised at the amount, at the level of service, because when we first walked in, then um, there yeah. was they, they they said you must be the Wheaton party. They, yeah, they knew who you were. Um, on the phone, they had asked, "Oh, are is this a special occasion?" Because I think that's normal, and I think that's their level of service to get to know why people are coming and get to know their patrons. And I said, no, I said, my um, my boyfriend is, um, oh, I said that on a podcast. There you go. Oh. Um, I said he is interested in beyond sustainable food, and um, so we're very curious about what the herb farm does. And, and I, I said you were an Internet celebrity. That's right. I oh said. my! Right. And we gave your credit card, so it was your name, Paul Wheaton. So they must have looked you up because the proprietor, Ken, uh, was it Zimmerman, came over and um, asked you about permaculture. I that's true. I didn't mention permaculture when I called. So yeah, and they must have. But that seems like I mean that Ron Zimmerman. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe um, maybe the things you said somehow got him doing that. I don't know, but. Um, or maybe I, somebody on staff already knew your staff and said, "Oh my gosh, I don't know." I, I, I don't know, but 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 later we did have a. There was a guy who was another patron who recognized me and came over and and shook my hand and stuff like that. 
That was, that was, he was from Maine. Right, but he originated from uh, Aberdeen, Washington. I think his name was Jesse. I think so, too. So um, He was wearing suspenders. Yeah, we were both pretty bold there because everybody else was wearing ties and fancy dresses. and Some, some people were in ties, but yeah, it was definitely a high-end crowd, that's for sure, that was used to... And, and you're right, the service was impeccable. They knew, everybody knew who we were. We had our name at our table. Right. We had our name on our coats. You know, everybody That's knew right. Who All we the were. staff, I mean, so they didn't just know who we were. Right. All of the staff knew who everybody was. Right. It's like they, had, they must have been there like hours before we showed up, somehow preparing for what everybody looked like and how to be able to address them and keep track of their coats. Right. Well, and, and so we got this history of the herb farm and how they started from Carrie uh, Van Dyke. And then um, when we moved into the dining room, uh, we, we heard about the food and the wine from the wine steward. They may have given them a different title than wine steward, but we heard about all the wine pairings. We heard about the food throughout the evening from the proprietor, um, Ken Zimmerman, and from the chef, and um, we, we met all of the kitchen staff, and the kitchen was like a stage at one side of the um, dining hall, uh, dining hall, dining room. And, and from what uh, one of them said when they were addressing the dining room is that they recognized a lot of people. They're, they're regulars. They're people that regularly spend this kind of money for this type of meal. So there were some people that were regulars there. And just from the conversations we had with a few of the people before dinner started, you know, these are true, true foodies. They are there for the food experience of a lifetime. And they, and they just love it. So the one chef guy that we met early on mm-hmm. in the library, I mean, he's like right. going bonkers about all the books in the library. Right. And he's describing, he knows most of them. Right. And he's, he's giving everybody a summary of what's in each of them. And he is a chef from uh, Portland, So, uh, which, of course, is between Woodenville and San Francisco. So uh, I guess his restaurant must not... Um, be a five diamond restaurant, um, but I, so I imagine these guys are are coming to um, to experience this finest of dining, um, in you know, possibly in the world. Is I mean, is it possible? I would I would think that there's got to be a restaurant because I've heard of a restaurant in Montana where just to drive onto the property that you have to pay a hundred thousand dollars per year just to drive onto the property. And then there's a restaurant there. And that apparently the parking lot is always packed with Land Rovers. So, I mean, like, it's not like this is the only... I mean, that's, got to, that's a lot more expensive than this place. Well, that sounds like a club, you know, an, an exclusive kind of place. And the, and the herb farm uh, becomes almost exclusive just because of the price. But, it, you know, and that's not why we were going. I mean, I think some people want the exclusivity <laughs> just by the price or by the club membership. But that's not what we were doing. I, I just so that's what I'm that's what it sounds like that Montana place might be. Right, right, right. It's gonna be some sort of country clubbish thing. But it's not a right, right. but well country as in like it is out in the country. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a ways out. It's in Montana for crying out loud. 
<laughs> so I don't know, did they take their Learjets there or something? I'm, I'm not sure. But, you know, and this reminds me of something else from the, um, the podcast or the, uh, the presentation about um, making the big bucks with permaculture, is that you were saying, like, there was, there was one guy, and you were pointing this out to me, there was one guy who was saying something like, um, I'm going to do what Paul Wheaton says, just get the same food, and then mark the price up a whole lot. Well, yeah, he said something that implied that, and and I think, and I think there's a, a huge distinction here. Uh, I'm not the best at tasting nuances in food. I, I would never make a taste tester, or you know, I'll, I, and I would never make a true gourmand because I have pretty simple tastes and I'm easy to please. But I do prefer the taste of organic food. I do prefer the taste of fresh food. I can taste that, and that makes a big difference for me. Um, This guy seemed to think there wasn't really a difference in some things except for price. And and I I think he was applying that to most everything. And And I don't think that's the case. I think there are sometimes there's a high price on something that may not be higher quality just because their branding has driven demand up so much that it's they're charging a higher price even if it's not better flavor. But I think, you know, what the slow food movement is about and what these true gourmands are about is quality fit flavor and a difference in flavor. And I don't drink a lot of wine, but I had you know, taste at the very least of five glasses of wine with this, five or six glasses of wine with this dinner this over this period of time. And I didn't drink the full glass of all of them, that's for sure, because I couldn't. But, you know, a lot of times just one glass of wine, I have a headache the next day. I didn't have a headache the next day after this food. And, and Paul was kind of joking with me, well, maybe that's because it's quality wine instead of my you know, normal, <laughs> normal cheap stuff I buy because I'm so cheap or frugal. But uh, you got to be careful. Don't you have some clients that make wine? <laughs> I'm sure that that wine doesn't give you headaches either. That's true. It does not. That's true. So true. But I, yeah, that 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 rubbed me a little bit the wrong way. I don't think it's about, and I don't think that's what you've been saying, and I'm struggling to describe what I'm trying to describe. I hope I'm not belaboring it too much. I think the point is you're talking about having the freshest, best food available and having it possibly be even better flavor and nutrition-wise from the beyond organic methods of growing it, from the permaculture methods of growing it. And I think people are willing to pay that. I think this restaurant is an example of that because this food was the freshest, highest quality food around. I mean, remember that venison? Didn't you say that was the tenderest, the most tender venison you had ever had? Right. Clearly somebody really knows how to cook meat. And in fact... Or age age it, cut it, you know, whatever else right. they did to it. Yes. So, yeah. They know what they're doing with meat. Yeah, well, with everything. So, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I just, and, and so, yeah, so coming back to my belabored point, I do think there is quality and that people mm-hmm. will pay for quality. I think that people will pay for quality, and I think you can get this level of quality in a different way also. I mean, if you look at this and it was $586, it, it seems to me like 
um, you could open up a restaurant right next door, and you could say, and we're serving permaculture food, and, and maybe you could do it for $750. Um, and so it's, it's kind of, and, and here's another thing, too. When you start talking about, I mean, I, and I also think that there's going to be a lot of people out there that can have a, a permaculture meal that they, that they put together, or they sell their permaculture food at a, at a farmer's market, but instead of selling it for like $2 a pound, sell it for $10 a pound. <clears throat> and then on top of that, um, I mean, just because the flavor is better, higher flavor, better flavor. And these guys will probably come and start buying this, this $10 a pound food from you, and, and they'll buy you out, whatever it is that you produce, so you don't even have to go to the farmer's market. Well, that's, that's the thing. Um, restaurants, even even smaller, lower-end restaurants, they want local food, they want fresh food. They're finding out that their customers will pay more for it and or they get more customers and or they just have better food and more referrals and, and higher ratings if they're buying the local fresh food. So the farmers that are really making it are the ones that are selling directly to the end user. The farmers are selling directly to restaurants. They're selling directly to consumers, either via farmers markets or CSAs. You know, that I think that's really the way we have to go to support our farmers instead of the commodity farming that, you know, the people just can't make a living at that anymore. So before I forget, I want to suggest a possible eco-ness in what we experienced. And, and that is that for... So for people in the Seattle area, I know of several people in the Seattle area that think of themselves as foodies. And so what they do is they scrimp and save for years and years and years. And then they go to Italy. And, and I mean, like, so then they're, they're I mean, what do they, if you're going to go to Italy for a week and, and eat at restaurants and stay in hotels and do all, how much does a trip like that cost per person? I mean, or even for, for the couple. I mean, right. for the, the couple is probably going to shell out about 10 grand, I'm, I'm guessing. Right. And, and so it's like, wow, 10 grand, or you could have stayed here and, and had this experience for $586. Mm -hmm. So um, I kind of feel like um, that, in, plus on top of that, that would have been a lot less petroleum used up to have you go and experience something. And I would suspect that the food that you're going to experience over there in Italy isn't going to be anything as good as what we experienced here. And I think there's a lot of people that are like n not fully experiencing their own backyard, but, but they go and drop money for um, a, a few tons of petroleum to be burned to fly their butts um, over to Europe and back. That's a good point. That's a good point. And I have to go into the specifics about the food. I'm just going to talk about the first three dishes first here. There was um, the little appetizer plate was a rabbit terrine with chanterelle, apricot, mustarda, and walnuts. You know, I, it was lovely. It was amazing. I, I'd never had a, a terrine before, let alone a rabbit terrine, but it was this lovely little flavor ex explosion. That was just one little thing on this plate, and there were three of them. There was a, um, a foie gras and chestnut soup with maple bock. There was a hand cut. Now, this was good. Hand cut smoked bison tartare on 
homemade potato chips. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And it had chickweed and arugula as kind of a garnish and also part of the flavor of that. So this was a, you know, this was just one plate. And and we could spend hours on the podcast just going through each and every of these nine courses. And I don't want to do that because everyone would fall asleep. So as you mentioned earlier, the, I mean, this is the point where the guys got up in the front. They had the, the chef uh-huh. and they had the wine guy. And you were saying steward. I don't know what what, they're, what he's called. I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm not a big fan of hooch, I'm so not. I just... I'm not. So when the when the wine guy started going on about the wine and the legs and the acidity and the you know whatever else all this stuff I did it made no sense to me buttery oak notes and yeah. fruity overtones things like yeah that. all those things that's when I ate the potato chips because <laughs> they were crunchy <laughs> I couldn't hear anything he said it sounded like this crunch 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 they were some pretty industrial strength potato chips and of course they were awesome and I mean the same thing too it's kind of like Wow, these are like the best potato chips I've ever had. I didn't know potato chips could be this good. All right. other potato chips are going to be kind of lame now. <laughs> right, right, right. And it right. had that goo on it. What, and what was the goo? Buffalo? Uh, bison tartare. Yeah, that was uh, an interesting stuff. And then, yeah, with a, with a little bit of chickweed on it, it was like that. It, it, I would never have thought of putting those things together yeah. like that. And then, yeah, there was a little tiny soup. That was the micro soup. <laughs> it's like really. This is a, this oh, is a bowl of soup. I thought that was good. It was good, but it was like was like the bowl. Like <laughs> it was just so tiny. It was like a little. Well, it was bigger than a thimble, but it was yeah. It was like a little shot. It probably like held a, about the a size of an espresso. Third of shot. a cup. It was like a third of a cup, right? Measured wise, it was smaller. smaller. Yeah. Quarter of a cup. Yeah. So I mean, but of course, we're going to be brought like twenty, twenty-five different things to consume. So. And then while you're getting hooch, they brought me some sort of special decantations or I don't know yeah, what it was. they had herbal and fruit um, uh, decoctions for you. And one was like a soda. Others were like teas, basically. But, but they were also meant to complement each course. So, yeah, very but, Yeah, one guy, when the guy was, was bringing it by and he would like, and every time they brought anything to our table, they would uh, go into great. I mean, they would they would individually stand there and tell us what this was and what the story is with it. And like the one gal came and served us, and she said, "I helped pick it. Yeah. Uh, we went foraging, and we got these this morning." She yeah, she um, is was listed both. I mean, everybody involved in the restaurant is listed in this menu that comes to you. That's like a program, like in a you know a theater program. But um, she was listed as one of the foragers. The other proprietor, Ken, is the main forager. But um, that's what was so cool to me is all the foraged items on the menu, which they had wild elderberry capers. Those were spectacular. And you really liked the pickled little teeny tiny sunchokes. Oh, yeah, those were good. Yeah. But they just had... You know, just amazing stuff. That was with some tuna stuff they had going on. And then they had um, a, like, pastry shoreman's pie thing. Um, for me, they instead of the pastry, they served it to me on a big piece of um, roasted celery root. you got to explain why yours was different. Yeah. Well, I was avoiding the gluten. So, so and they wanted to know that ahead of time. Yeah. And then they, they started saying that they were going to prepare all these other things just for you. Yeah. Yeah, and so this was all this seafood stuff in in the third third course. 
So we ate, or for me, it was my first truffle. We actually ate Oregon black truffle in the fourth course. That was the um, bread and black gold course where they had sweet breads and black truffle. What that? That was pretty amazing. And and on you know not sweet breads but bread. Um, throughout the meal, they kept bringing all these different kinds of breads. Yes. And they brought you gluten free breads. Yeah, but sweet breads are not bread. Right. That's why I said it's not bread. Right. Not the same kind of bread. Right. Right. Yeah. Sweet breads are little organ meat. But once you said sweet breads, it reminded me of breads. Right. Just because they have the same you know that word bread. In yes. them, I, I, even I though one of them is not really bread. Uh, yeah, I follow you. Okay, I all right, you. all right. So um, they they had uh, some kind of something that with rosemary in it that was amazing. It's like, oh, that was so good. And then they were bringing you some sort of like little corn muffin that was gluten free, and you kept passing them over to me, and those were good. <laughs> yep, yep. So um, anyway, so I've talked about four of the cor- courses already. Um, we had the venison. That was cool. Ken came over and talked to you about that. He was really excited that he had found some mountain ash berries that weren't too bitter for making a jam. So we actually had our uh, onion wild mountain ash berry jam with our venison, which was pretty amazing. So he was, he was pretty excited about that. But you know, this is where what was he was looking for. He, he said rose hips. Oh, uh, have you seen rose hips this year? Yeah. Well, are there any left? Do you know where any might be left? But they're all they're all moldy or soggy this time of year in the Northwest. They've gone bad. They've gone to mush. Because mm-hmm. um, I looked, <clears throat> I looked at them on a trail when I took a walk with my daughter just the weekend prior to this, or just just prior to going there. Um, but this is where, you know, all of them, this is where what you really can't get into is all the, and, and I'm sure people have probably gone to meals like this before, but there's, you know, the little decorative squirt of some kind of sauce, and then there's the little drops, decorative drops of something else, and, you know, and each one of these things is a little flavor burst of something delectable. And it took just a plate just to plate each course for everybody and get it arranged itself. You know, you had five of the wait staff or five of the kitchen staff standing at the counters in their white coats hurriedly plating everything while it's still warm to get it out to us. So, I mean, cooking shows are all the rage right now. So I'm sure, you know, people have seen some of this stuff going on in some of the cooking shows they have on TV now too. But this was experiencing it. You know, it's lovely. Well, we got to try a lot of food. And it does seem like in the past you go to a restaurant and you try something really fascinating and interesting and and you'll try one fascinating and interesting thing in a night. And and um, there were some things that were brought like potato chips. It's like, well, I've had potato chips before. <laughs> and so, but on the other hand, these were like super great, awesome mega potato chips. But it was this kind of ongoing um, a buffet of flavors. There were there were only like one or two things I didn't really care for, um, and um, uh, but everything else ranged from quite good to like, wow, that was amazing. That was like 
that was a tr- uh, that that one item was a, a trip to Italy, you know, and and uh, <clears throat> there so there were some some really spectacular, but you only get like a little taste. Um, I I didn't try to ask for seconds on any of the food, but I did ask for seconds on one of the drinks. I I can't remember which one it was. Oh right, that was some kind of soda, and they brought you more of that. I don't think so. I think it was just a, just a juice. Oh, okay. it may have been just a juice. Mm. But it was uh, and some sort of blossom infusion with something. I, I don't remember what it was. Right. But um, and they did. They brought me more of it. Um, and uh, anyway, they were. Oh, and I, w- I want to go back to the thing about the names. So um, uh, I would expect that a place like that. I don't mind that they have our name there. But it's like we would walk in. They would say, "Okay, what is your name?" And then they, we would tell them. And then they would find our table and say, "Okay, now you're over here." They didn't do that at all. They knew everybody's name. Yeah. And and you never had to say your name. They already knew who you were. Uh-huh. And then and then they would sit you down and then when you drop off your coat, may I take your coat? So there's a gal there, I'll take your coat. And and um she doesn't need to know your name. She already knows it. And then it gets put away. And we saw, we looked into the coat room and we saw there there was our coats and then there was our name on the hanger. Right. Before I figured out our name was on the hanger and even probably before I figured out our name was on the table, we we wanted to go walk outside. They have pigs you can go visit, you know, little pot belly pigs that they feed the um, scraps from people's plates. Um, but they just keep them as pets. They don't use them for the kitchen. <laughs> but they, um, I think we went to get our coats and they... Uh, they just knew which coats. You didn't have to say, "Oh yeah, it's that coat over there." They yeah. As, I, I as mean, you, before we really figured out that they knew everybody, and everybody knew everybody. As yeah. you're approaching, they're pulling out your coats. Yeah. You know, and, wow. and so they've they've got it all figured out, and um, yeah. So, all right, uh, back back to the the big list. We're not to desserts yet, are we? No, no. Well, we kind of skimmed over the venison, um, and there was the um, hunter's sausage. It was like a was venison awesome. elk sausage or something. And all the little sauces and parsnip puree, red cabbage, and a beet sauce, you know, all of that stuff was just lovely. And there was a hazelnuts and cheese strudel. I think that was one you didn't like so much. Um, yeah. And um, um, I think people who like wine also like stinky cheese. <laughs> uh, let's have wine and cheese. Let's Let's have... Like rotted juice and and uh, and and stinky dairy products. But they had that one perfect pickled pie cherry with that with the pit still in it. Remember that? Oh yeah, that was that, good. That was I like, awesome. I like that. Um, after that, they had this like dessert plate that was a poached pear with a cranberry jelly. Jelly. I'm sorry, I'm butchering pronunciation pronunciation here. We need Adrian. (laughs) But the amazing thing there, and they talked about the vitamin C and the uses of the Douglas fir needles for um, they made a Douglas fir sorbet. I think the Douglas fir sorbet was the best part of that little, um, that course. Yeah. And they had this little cranberry, and the cranberries were local cranberries and they had a little cranberry powder and if you dip the Douglas fir sorbet and the cranberry powder you know I mean there were just these little flavors 
combinations you could create from each plate that were just fun. Yeah, and and the Douglas fir, I mean, it was definitely Douglas fir flavored. It was. And and um mm-hmm. and I thought I was going to hate it. Like this is you know this is going to be ridiculous. This is going to be stupid. But it was amazingly awesome. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I mean they 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 worked at it. They got it to be crazy good. And then they had your favorite dessert next. Part of that had some native um, plants in it too. They had a native huckleberry mousse inside this cake thing. It was a pumpkin cake, native huckleberry mousse, pumpkin bay butter enrobed in a dark chocolate velvet, and that was the maple cap mushroom syrup. That was something amazing. I mean, I remember the first time I ever ate a Napoleon and thinking like, wow, what an amazing dessert. But now a Napoleon seems coarse and, you know, um, stupid uh, and lame and, you know, uh, pathetic. Whatever that, this thing that they made, it was like some sort of cake. And then because the cake would defy gravity, then, uh, or because the cake could not stand on its own, then they encased it in chocolate. Some sort of, you know, and then so you end up with this, this little um, <clears throat> chocolate uh, pillar on your plate, this this little chocolate, um, uh, what do they call that thing at the beginning of the movie 2001 where there's that great big black thing at the beginning of the movie and all of the cavemen are like going bonkers? Right? No, no, no. It's got another word. Maybe it's from having read the book. There's a word for it. I can't remember what it is. So anyway, there's, there's this... Um, it stands on your plate. It's thin and narrow. It looks. It's exactly shaped like the thing from 2001. <laughs> That's what it is. I don't is. know that movie. So, so, so um, uh, anyway, the um, and then there's inside of the chocolate. There's like all these different layers of stuff, and that was, and it, as you're eating into it, it's it's like it hits your tongue, and <laughs> your tongue is like. Yes, please. <laughs> it's like that's that is that was amazing. I think that was that was the best thing from the whole night was that strange cake. You enjoy your sweets, so well. Yeah, there is some of that too. Well, and for the whole night, I was kind of thinking like this is kind of. I thought it was kind of boring. Um, well, they took a long time between courses so that you could savor all these little bites and. And they took a long time explaining different courses and different wines, and you know, and there wasn't it wasn't there wasn't entertainment besides that. I mean, you could get up and go walk out and feed the pigs, but you know, and you yeah. could visit their wine cellar there. Which know. we went to feed the pigs, and I wanted to go look at their gardens because mm-hmm. that's where their gardens are, and um, they were raised beds. They were like um, raised a foot, foot and a half. Some of their gardens, just a small amount of their gardens. Oh, right. These are just the ones that are right there next to the restaurant that you can walk through and to go to go see the pigs. And the pigs, of course, are in a little hut. And uh, but it does look like that they're like somebody somewhere is putting a lot of work into making sure that these pigs are pampered. And and so it's like so, so the level of pampering helps. I mean, but I don't think they ever leave that panda area. 
and that's not that big of an area. So I was kind of a little, mm, yeah. it's great that they're being pampered. Okay, points, plus, 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 plus. The level of pampering, very, I mean, they made a big deal out of it at the beginning. Like, don't feel like, if, if, if there's anything you don't feel like eating, don't worry about it. The pigs will be so much happier. <laughs> and, and so um, everybody seemed to really enjoy that, that line of thought. <clears throat> and uh, I think everybody really enjoyed the idea of eating weeds and, and things like that. But anyway, the, uh, uh, the fact that the pigs can't move around on fresh grass, that bothered me. I'm glad to see that they got to go outside. They had a place to go outside and be in the sun. That's great. And that they were being fed some of the most awesome food, you know. Right. So I'm plenty of it. I mean, what that is so much better than just throwing it in the garbage. They're feeding it to those to those two pigs. Right. Um, so so that's that's great. Um, but yeah, their gardens. Uh, I saw there, there was a little bit of polyculture, but um, and the gardens were looking a little sparse. But I think it could have been the season. Like we're we're at, we're in the fall now. We're well into the fall, and um, so I would have liked to have seen a polyculture. And there may have been a lot of polyculture there, but I saw a lot of wood mulch, which is not something that I like to see. Yeah. I was calling it winter, though technically winter doesn't start till later in December. But we already are in December, so. You know, and, and I, I have a hard time calling any season in this area winter. <laughs> Point taken. <laughs> yeah, you, you have, oh. you, winter might fall on a Tuesday. Right, yeah. right. And we, we have gray drizzle, yeah. even, not even a lot of frost. We get, if the cloud cover clears, then we get frost. But as long as the cloud cover stays, you know, we're so close to the ocean and we have so many other lakes and things that you know, that heat is just held in with the clouds and all the water. When it clears, then we get frost and get cold. But most things are not growing, although they do have a few things that are. And so then um, they were pulling fresh food out of the garden and, and putting that as part of the meal. And, and um, the, the point where they are, they are putting in um, the, the weeds and then um, the things that are wild-crafted, mm -hmm. and they're <clears throat> making a special point of it, that seemed to be a massive selling point to these people. Oh, and it was, uh, it was, I kept raving about it all night. I think it was really exciting to us. So even your after-dessert coffee or after-dessert drink, you could choose. Um, I think you chose a dandelion uh, barley oh, right. drink, and you didn't like it, but it was dandelion, dandelion barley and something else, roots. What they're, they're trying to do that thing where you try to make um, uh, roasted dandelion root taste like coffee. coffee. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't want any caffeine, not even decaf coffee. But um, <clears throat> I thought, well, if anybody's going to make it taste like coffee, these guys are going to do it. So this yeah. is the herbal coffee. And, right. and so um, I, I didn't care for it. It didn't, to me, it didn't taste like coffee. It tasted like um, something scraped out of the pan that was cooked too long in the oven, you know. And right. I mean, it tastes like roasted yuck. Yeah, something burnt, you said. I had something I really enjoyed, which I'd never thought of or heard of before, and it was magnolia bark um, tea, basically, or a magnolia bark decoction. And it had a really robust... Oh, it was eucalyptus. 
No. No. Okay. All right. Magnolia. No, eucalyptus. Is, mm. okay. <laughs> I don't think you can do that. <laughs> My mistake. Maybe somebody can correct us, but I don't I think you can do that. No, it was magnolia. You know, the bark that curls off and peels off. That's magnolia. And um, boy, full-bodied color, full-bodied flavor, a lovely coffee or black tea substitute. I it makes me want to go out and harvest some of that. That was lovely. So they developed some of these originally, I think, for the 100-mile diet, a uh, 100-mile meal, because coffee does not grow in the Seattle area. Oh, right. So, um, and then they gave us some chocolates. They, they, they made, like, interesting chocolate confections, and, and those were lovely and, and amazing. Yeah, and they have, they didn't have a store store there, but they still have the herb farm and they have they grow over a hundred varieties of herbs and they make all kinds of bath products with their herbs they make like herbal pillows that you can heat up in the microwave and soothe your neck and they just have all of these things from their herb farm store that some people that's what they were doing in between courses they were buying some of the herb farm stuff that was in the lobby a little bit, but it was not obtrusive. It wasn't like a store, and it was totally kind of in the background. But as we left, they gave us more chocolates that they had made, their herb farm store chocolates they gave us, as they gave us our coats. Right. <clears throat> so there was um, so much... There, there was a lot going on. I thought it was boring uh, in some parts. The food itself was excellent. I mean, basically, you end up having, I don't know, probably five meals, but since they're all so tiny, that uh, they're like five amazing meals. Oh, and it's, another thing is, is that it's not like you go and you show up and you get to pick what you eat. Right. They also um, uh, made a big deal, like the, the, the wife that we mentioned earlier, so of the people who, Carrie. Uh, so the woman, who, the woman half of the owner's package, uh, she came to our table and she asked us about our food preferences, and she was wanted she wanted details. So you said about the gluten free issue, you know, any you? kind of any kind of things that you don't like or you like, or or what are some you know dietary issues or anything like that. And so you said that you couldn't eat any gluten, and so um, and I said I just don't care for the taste of alcohol. And so then they were like majorly accommodating in that space. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, you don't pick the menu. You don't pick what foods you're going to eat. There's like what they are presenting. Right. And, and that's, that's what you get. Um, right. And we, <clears throat> they have a very um, detailed website, and, and we picked up a very detailed brochure when we were there. They have seasonal dinners that... <clears throat> That's the other thing. Everything besides being local and wildcrafted, I mean, they work very hard to do seasonal foods. So Everything the, changes every week or two. Right. So this meal we went to, this event, was called the Harvest Table. It was all about, you know, harvest foods and flavors. And they have, um, they have all, they have different themed uh, meals. They have one that's uh, all based around salmon because of the uh, salmon. This is salmon country. Right, and the salmon culture. They call it Salmon Nation, and it looks like they, 
they're really um, going to highlight some of the native traditions as as well. So, and and that was a big thing they w they were fond of talking about with the dishes, especially the Doug fur and and um, some of the de coffee substitute decoctions were based on some native traditions and things like that. So they have, I mean, there's just too many to mention. Um, huh. They have one called, um, or they did last year or last month, a mycologist's dream. It was a meal based on mushrooms. Isn't that amazing? So I hope they're all edible. <laughs> But anyway, this is a podcast for foodies, obviously, but I, but it's also an excellent example of making money from what you can grow and what you can harvest. Here, here's a quick interesting note is that today we, uh, for the second time uh, in your neighborhood, we went and purchased um, uh, uh, raw milk mm -hmm. and, and, so, and brought it back. And so I have raw cream for my coffee in the morning. Um, so uh, uh, Washington State is must be a state where you're you're allowed to sell raw milk. We bought it right off the shelf, grass-fed raw milk. Um, they have to be certified or something. So probably it's just the larger dairies who are able to really sell it across, you know, a retail shelf these days. So I'm I'm not I don't unfortunately I don't know more details than that. So, um, <clears throat> all right, the, the emphasis to me now, so granted, you're saying for foodies, and, and while I found pleasure in eating the food, um, you know, I, I think I, I would have been, um, uh, I don't know, I, I want to say I'd be happier with simpler fare, but I don't know, I did have a good time. I mean, a part of me wants to say, oh, I'd never pay that much for a meal. But, um, you know, at the same time, I'm kind of thinking like, I'm glad I went. I'm glad it was an experience, it, and and um, uh, it was it, it it was yeah like like five really good dinners in one night, and they paste it for you, and everything is just wonderful, and boy, they just treat you like royalty. But the the purpose for the podcast to me is to say you can make. A lot, there are a lot of people out there willing to pay this much money, a lot, and amazingly a lot. And what they want is they want to eat weeds <laughs> and they want to eat wild-crafted food. And, um, and I believe that you know, the way that they could have possibly improved the story is to say something like, this pork was raised um, without any grain. This pork was raised um, as a forested animal, eating acorns and um, eating polycultures, and and what about you know maybe one of their future menus will be the permaculture harvest, you know, and and um, they'll say we want you to notice how when you eat a raspberry that it is the most flavorful raspberry you have ever put in your mouth, and and that that is and, and this is and so here we're going to bring to you a plate and it's got three things on it. And one of the things is a single raspberry. It's untouched. There's nothing else with the raspberry because the raspberry is going to be the most amazing thing you've ever eaten as far as raspberries go by itself. And so um, I, I just think that the potential is there. Uh -huh. And, and I, I think it could be easy for 
um, uh, another outfit to compete. Or, or you know, here's another thing too. If these guys are charging $586 per couple, I don't think it'd be too much for somebody else to come up with something that charges $200 per couple. Right. Well, and be a simpler meal. Right. Well, we've had a lot of farm dinners in this area. You can drive just, you know, 30, 40 minutes east and have a farm dinner for 180 to 100 per person. Those those fill up and get sold out all the time as well. So that is happening, and I think I think there's lots of income elements here to look at. I mean, these people started with herbs because they just loved growing herbs and they loved sharing about herbs and they started having classes about how to use the herbs and then they got more and more herbs and then they had um, meals at the classes to, you know, and that's how their restaurant grew. They were doing what they loved. And and the, and this grew out of their love for herbs and fresh food and and sharing with people. And you could still see there was a ton of passion and excitement. I mean, this woman gave us the history of their farm store, and she must give it every single night. You know, uh, hundred started off. We've been there ten years, and you, it would still seem like a fresh story. It started off with an uh, honor system farm store. Ah, it started off with a right. wheelbarrow and a cash box. That's right. So the, they would put the herbs in the wheelbarrow at the end of their driveway next to the road with a cash box. Yep. And people would just pay for it. And, and Those put were the extra the plants. Box. She would have extra and extra. It started with chives plants, I think. Yeah, did. with chives. It all started with chives. They had yeah. way too many chives. Yeah. And so then they were just putting them in the wheelbarrow and selling them. And then they put more stuff in the wheelbarrow. Yeah. And then they got something bigger than a wheelbarrow. And it grew and grew. And I can imagine, and, you know, I don't, they just never said this, but I can imagine that they start selling to restaurants. And the stuff that the restaurants would do with their amazing herbs would be lame or that they would use herbs that were like, oh, you've kept those herbs too long. You know, those are too old. And it's like, they won't do what I tell them to do. And, and it's like, I could just see them... Yeah. Oh, this is just oh, driving me crazy. I need that. Well, this is this is some, this, in my imagination. Okay. Then they're thinking, you know what? I gotta I gotta have a restaurant just so that I can cook the foods the way that's right, and prepare it and put it out there in the way that's right, using the herbs while they're just hours old, not weeks old or days old, because these are the good things and and they spoil faster. And and so I could just see them having that passion and saying, we just need to do it right. These guys aren't doing it right, you know. And so um, and I could see that that being the foundation for this. Right. Well, the other aspects I want to point out, as if they're not already painfully obvious, but um, they were doing what you know, besides doing what they loved, and 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 just adding a level of service and a level of information and a level of celebration that made this much more of an event. You know, and even adding in the pigs or their gardens and the garden tour, it's almost a little bit like an agro-tourism, sort of, but not quite. But, the, but, but that all adds into the event status of this instead of just a meal. And the other part of it is, obviously, restaurant food is a value-added product. You're, you're creating... And something out of what you're growing instead of just selling the raw elements. So, I mean, there's lots of value-added elements here from everything from the chutneys and the jams and the 
wild elderberry capers to, you know, um, you know, fermented stuff to everything, let alone the meal itself, and as well as the, the foraging products. So just so many, many different potential income streams for people who, who are homesteading and have interest in these areas. Um, <clears throat> I, I know you've got some notes on your contraption over there, mm -hmm. but I know one of them was that instead of interns, they had oh. externs. Mm -hmm. And didn't you say you looked that up to figure out what that meant? I did. Excuse me. And of course, we're eating while making a uh, a podcast about food. So externs are um, basically the same as interns. They just don't live on the site. So I think most people use intern changeably for people who are working and learning or, you know, working in exchange for a learning experience, whether it's at a restaurant, on a farm, in an office. Um, uh, but most people call all of those interns, but really interns are the only ones who live where they're also learning and working. Externs are ones who do not live where they're learning and working. So, so they had um, quite a few externs in their kitchen, and and they were helping plate the food, I believe. So, <clears throat> I'm sitting here eating some pineapple that's fresh and um, organic and all that. But, but flown into Seattle. Yeah. We don't grow pineapple well, and, here. <clears throat> and so part of me thinks there's. I've always thought I've never been to Hawaii, but I've always thought there's only one reason to really go. And I've always thought maybe someday I'll go to Hawaii and, and it would be to eat the pineapple. I hear it's better than if you're there and, and you eat it. So um, I, I, now I kind of think like maybe uh, in the winter of 2013, 2014, maybe somebody over there will have a permaculture farm and, and they want me to come and, I don't know, present on something and and uh, <laughs> talk about Maybe there the ought to be a, like a, a, a winter permaculture or a, a, a cold cold climate permaculture uh, conference in Hawaii. <laughs> and then and then we'll go down there uh, in January. And, and so it's all, we're in Montana, it's all cold and blizzardy and everything like that. And then you go to Hawaii for a few days. And so uh, then, I, then I could be stacking my functions. I could be presenting and, uh, and I could be eating pineapple to see what it's like. Because <laughs> I hear it's so much better. And, and I, do, I do really like pineapple. I was just reading something about the nutritive values, um, depending on how they're grown, is, is, is very, very different, but the amazing, um, the bromelain that's in the pineapple. Anyway, but getting back, one last thing we did forget to mention now that I'm double-checking my notes is on top of this whole experience, this whole level of service, which, which, you, pay, which you paid for, the, uh, the very... Um, pinnacle or cap of it is they sent us a completely handwritten um, and signed thank you card. Oh right. Now, <clears throat> so then we had that that led into a big conversation today about <laughs> about courtesy and and things like. That. And now of course, part a big part of what they're doing is service. Mm -hmm. And this is probably the level of stuff that they do that that is beyond my comprehension for those people. A lot of the, like a lot of those people there keep coming back to get that little thank you card. 
like somehow that's that whole thing where their name is remembered and and the thank you card and things like that. That's what keeps them coming back, and that's a level of service that I cannot seem to perform. When, when I was being raised and I was had a crazy weird childhood, um, then um, uh, for well for a lot of my life. Uh, I was being raised as a kid. I, there's no clue that you would ever do anything like that. But for a couple of years, I was raised by uh, my aunt, Donna Lee, and, and she was very emphatic about um, the uh, thank you card, which I couldn't seem to ever get my head wrapped around. And, and to this day, I'm, I'm not wired that way, but other people are. So we spent, I don't know how many hours we spent talking about people who do that and, and how there are a lot of really fantastic, wonderfully awesome people where the whole concept of the thank you card, it is the, the idea for them they have to do the thank you card. And then we talked about sending something to my Aunt Donnelly and I said, you know what, then, then she would feel obligated to send me a thank you card. <laughs> and so um, I just I've I'm now in a state where I'm not wired that way. I'm defective. Well, I yeah, it it's different for different people and this would not be the type of experience that a lot of people would want to um create or or the level of service. Um but I think um Sorry, Paul just made a really funny face. <laughs> but I think we're... Oh, time to go with that piece of pineapple there. <laughs> but I think, um, I think it's just an interesting, fascinating example, and it was uh, something I recommend people try. Right. <clears throat> I, you know, maybe they can charge an extra $100 or something because they send a thank you card. I, I don't know. But that, that, I mean, it does kind of reflect like this level of service that I didn't think existed in 2012. Um, and it does. It does. Um, and what an amazing and powerful thing. Mm -hmm. So um, oh, we've, uh, we've talked about it multiple, multiple times and, um, and, and just and are now making a whole podcast about it. All right. Anything else? I think we covered that thoroughly. Yeah. Um, we're uh, Coming up soon, I'm going to have a podcast with uh, Sally Fallon Morrell. Speaking of food. She is um, a big cheese over at uh, Weston A. Price Foundation. And uh, she also has that book, Nourishing Traditions. She's uh, also um, powerfully knowledgeable in raw milk. So we're going to have a whole podcast about raw milk. Um, and I've got some. I've I've been exchanging emails with Maddie Harland. I just recently received Seth Holzer's latest book in um, an electronic format uh, because it's now going to press, or I think it's just coming off the press now. It's now in English. Yes. The English version. Yes. Uh, not yet. It won't be available for another month in the United States. Which, but which book is that? Uh, Desert or Paradise, or is it Paradise or Desert, or something like that? And um, this is his latest book to be translated to English, and so I've I've just I've already um, browsed the whole book, and now I'm going back and I'm reading every word. <laughs> so um, uh, there's that. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about doing a lot of different things. Um, uh, uh, you know, for for future podcasts and what new direction we're going to go in. Um, 
I've I've been a little off my feet in making podcasts for a variety of reasons, and so we're finding new ways to get me inspired. But uh, a lot of work has been going in late, lately to buy land, and hopefully we're going to close here in two days and uh, on 80 acres, um, two or three days, something like that, um, on 80 acres. That would put most people off their feet. Yeah, yeah. That's it's been it's been a lot. It's been difficult. It's been really difficult. It's been kind of I've learned far more about real estate law than I ever wanted to know, um, and and how these processes work. Um, it's it's been insane. Um, but you know we're getting that done, and um, you know I've I've got two other huge projects I've been working on that have been taking up a lot of time. So. Uh, um, but I, I think that uh, um, we're going to we're going to change the podcast format a little bit. Oh, and and Fukuoka's birthday is coming up, right? And so Masanobu Fukuoka, uh, his birthday is February second, Groundhog's Day, and um, he uh, this upcoming February, so February two thousand thirteen, he would be one hundred years old, and so we're we we we. Uh, we had a meeting with the Permian staff today, and we talked about different things that we might possibly do for that. Um, we should probably get a, a thread going in the tinkering forum in case anybody has any ideas on other things to do for Fukuoka's birthday. Um, but uh, I, I'm, I really like the idea that we do something grand on, yeah. on his birthday. Yeah. All right. Uh, anything else? Nope. All right. If you like this sort of thing, Come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about good food, homesteading, and permaculture all, all the, the time. time.